You're listening to the Inspire Excellence Podcast, recorded at the BVA headquarters with your hosts, Bill Whitaker and Tommy Alquist. Bill is the former CEO of the J.R. Simplot Company and is now a full-time adventure seeker and philanthropist. Tommy is the CEO of BVA Development, co-founder of Crush the Curve Idaho, and most importantly, a full-time grandfather. Each episode focuses on sharing the stories of individuals who are changing the world. Welcome back to Inspire Excellence Podcast. This week, we have a great guest and uh, looking forward to getting caught caught up with Bill. Um, I do want to start this episode, Bill. Uh, you know, your, your handle on tw- uh, Instagram is Where's Bill? So I think we should update our audience where you've been the last two weeks before we get into the podcast because you've been on a pretty cool trip. Yeah, well, yeah, we, we went down and we have a, a an off-road sprinter van and we actually remoted ourselves. I mean, we got real remote in southern Utah and that's the way we spent Thanksgiving. Now, I got to tell you, uh, we had a blast. It was phenomenal. We can't, we parked way out in the Canyonlands uh, all by ourselves. Uh, didn't see anybody for a few days. Um, uh, but I really miss the family and friends um, of the holidays. And it's going, I'm going to really miss it on uh, Christmas also. I mean, it's just, I can't imagine not spending, you know, holidays with family and friends. But uh, we are uh, just not going to travel and do all the things we have to do right now. So that can happen. So, but I am now in Eagle, Idaho, so our Meridian just minute. But <laughs> glad to be. Glad to be. W- welcome back. All right. With that, uh, we're going to introduce uh, Tina Upson, uh, the executive director of Crush the Curve Idaho. And I'll give a little brief introduction of Tina, and then uh, we've got a lot to talk about today, Tina. Um, so <clears throat> last spring, uh, Bill and I and another group of CEOs got together and just said, how can we be part of the solution? You know, business had to play a role in this. How, how do we help and be and kind of do our part? And, and, and as we got rolling, we realized that we needed someone full time uh, to really dig into this and try to take it to the next level, if you will. I, I'll tell you, when I first brought up the idea of Tina Ups and I knew she was kind of maybe between things and kind of uh, grounded a bit from her, her international career as a tech uh, kind of a tech uh, techie behind the scenes, uh, making a making a difference for her companies, and I and I thought well, let's ask her to see if we could get her for a few months. Uh, and I think really, Bill, you know, we talked about this. We knew that we had to automate in order to scale anything we did. We had to automate. And so, although Tina may not have had a background in COVID like none of us did, or from healthcare for that matter, uh, she did have a very impressive resume of going in and automating companies and turning them around with technology. And I thought, what a great, what a great fit. And I also know how tenacious she is. And I thought, if anything needs to happen right now, we need some tenacity. So Tina started last spring and man, what a journey. I, I can't tell you how proud we are of the work you've done with your team and what a great relationship it is. So with that introduction, welcome to the show, uh, Tina Upson from Crush the Curve Idaho. Thank you guys for having me. You know, I got to tell you, Tommy, when when she first came on, I was afraid of her. Uh, <laughs> she was intimidating. I remember making a comment. I was with you and Mike Warren, and we were out standing out in the field uh, south of McCall, and um, 
and I made a comment about, and I didn't, I didn't mean anything disrespectful. And I thought, man, that we've got a warrior princess on our hands here or something like that. <laughs> and I, I'm telling you, it, I, I know she has skills and I know she has tenacity, but she does what she says she's going to do. She accomplishes a lot. And I think she's turned out to be one of my most favorite people that I've ever worked with. <laughs> I, she is an incredible wow. doer in in all senses of the world in the, the word and uh, and I'm just glad that we're doing this with her today. Well, in all in all, uh, Tina, if we're, we're going to all be honest, though, I I knew I knew at the beginning, Bill, that maybe I wasn't your favorite person, and I even said to Tommy. I, I was like, you know, I think I, I think I came in a little too much bull in a china shop and was ready to dig in, and I think I freaked everybody out, and um, you know, and I and I knew maybe you're one of those, so I was glad when I realized we turned that corner and I'd earned your confidence for sure. It meant a lot. You're you're my, you're my favorite person now. I like you so much better than Tommy Alquist. Or <laughs> there you go. <laughs> truth. Hashtag truth. Hey, listen, before we start talking about Crush the Curve, though, Tina, t- tell us a little bit about you. Grew up here in, in Idaho and and then uh, mother of, of some amazing children. Yep. And uh, but 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 an Idaho girl. And then you really you really your business career has been in technology, specifically automating companies, making them leaner, making making the product scalable so that they could grow. Tell us a little bit about your family, a little bit about your history before we get into Crux Curve. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Idaho girl, born and raised, took about a five-year hiatus when I was first married, living in Arizona with my husband, um, came back here to really start his company and get those things moving. Um, I, I grew up as the oldest of six kids. And when I first kind of rose through the business ranks, if you would, people would say, wow, you know, where did you get your education from? How did you learn how to lead teams? And I was just like, I, I mean, I ran that house like a top, you know, I'll tell you what, I mean, I, if, if I had a, a task that I had been given or a chore, not only did my siblings do the chore, they loved doing it. They thought it was a pleasure to do it. So I, I, you know, really learned um, a lot of skills, honestly, in the home and with a big, large family. I'm blessed to have four daughters of my own. And, uh, and that's an adventure you know, that, that is just amazing for, for anybody who can relate to having children. It's just every, every phase is just um, an awesome journey. You know, when it comes to taking technology and automating and making things leaner, for me, it's just a way to really stretch the bandwidth of a team to support the bandwidth of a team. And then, you know, really just take advantage of what's already known and out there that allows for us to be able to accomplish outcomes at scale. And so, you know, it's definitely something I'm passionate about. Um, software as a service is a passion of mine. I, I love the opportunity that, that comes with a SaaS or software as a service offering where you make an investment, a large investment, you build something one time, and then you can have an infinite amount of revenue kick off of it that isn't, you know, without a variable expense going with it. Um, and to me, that's always very, very exciting. And it, you know, creates some really, incre- you know, incredible opportunities, some of which uh, some of our board members that crush the curve have experienced by building those types of entities. So, um, yeah, I mean that's that's kind of me in a nutshell, I guess. That's awesome. Uh, before, one more question, and then Bill, I'm going to shut up for a minute. Um, one of the things about you is, um, so we have this board that that really got together, Bill, and said, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna really make a difference." And I think everyone got committed. It's been quite honestly, 2020 will be remembered for a lot of things for me personally, but the friendships we've developed 
on that board going through this year has just been incredible. And then we bring you, Tina, in. And I want to ask this question because because I don't know that I I, I, I listen. I what, in medicine, you're around a lot of great female leaders. You just are. Um, the, the the woman that ran our group for years, super strong leader in the ER, the nursing staff. There's a lot of women in healthcare, and and I've been around a lot of great women leaders in my life, and I respect the heck out of them. And it's just it's part of that culture, right? And but one of the things about you when you came in to a pretty intimidating situation. I mean, you come in, you got Bill Whitaker, you know, former CEO of Simplot. You got Mike Boren, just sold his his company for a gazillion dollars. You got Brad Wiskersian. Right, you've got this board, Ken Orem and and Courtney, and you came into this thing. And I, I guess what I would ask you before we get into to COVID is what 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 message would you have for women leaders out there? Because you command a room. You mm-hmm. you you command a room, you're confident, you 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 tell us about that because I think I think that's one of the most impressive things about your leadership style. I agree with Bill. Sometimes it's like, oh my gosh, I, we don't know what we got a tiger by the tail here. But <laughs> But, but you're very confident, you're very self-confident. What advice would you give women that, that are in the workplace that may be a little bit intimidated by a situation like this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the advice I do give, you know, I do get asked questions by young or upcoming or other women in the workplace. Um, I get asked questions about navigating in a man's world or, you know, what does that really look like? How does it, how does it feel when you sit at that table? Uh, my experience has not lent me to be insecure in those settings. I Maybe I'm just the fortunate and the only one that is. But my experience in business has not been such that I have ever felt oppressed by or held back by men in the workplace. Um, I have, you know, and so I really encourage women to not start from that place of maybe like they, they think I'm less than because I'm a woman. Um, they may think that. But I never walk into a room feeling or assuming that anybody feels that way. Um, I think part of that comes from having a really great father growing up. You know, Tom Luna is my dad, for those listening that may know him. You know, I think it's a lot easier for a woman when you have a really incredible father figure that is very respectful to your mother and very respectful to you as a female. I never felt like gender played any role in the value I could bring to the room. Um, it was an intimidating board to, to come into, to be honest. And, and you know, I a lot of people don't know this, but I never really even accepted the position. I don't know if I still have. Tommy just told everybody I was running it and looked me in the eye like, this means you're running it. And I'm not kidding when I say that. I was in yoga and the dead son in yard work and he talked me into coming over to the office and then he just called everybody and said, she's running it. And, um, you know, so I don't know if I've ever accepted, but, you know, I, for me, it was a really great opportunity. Kent Orem from ICCU, I'm a fangirl. He was on the board. Um, you know, being able to be around um, Bill from, C- you know, the CEO of Simba. I mean, these are just incredible business leaders. You know, typically for me to have um, the pay scale I've gotten accustomed to as an executive, I've had to work for out-of-state firms. I mean, that's, the, you know, a lot of times has happened. So for me, I was like, gosh, you know, these are really incredible, brilliant business leaders that I get to now rub, you know, elbows with. I never realized how long the project was going to be or like what it would evolve into. I mean, I don't think anybody did. Um, but it's been a huge blessing. So I guess, you know, overall, my advice, Tommy, would be to any female is to just not assume that you're looked down on because you're a female. Uh, my experience, good men value women. And so if you're in a room with good men, you're going to be valued. So that, that's how I felt. Fantastic. You know, what I think is pretty interesting is I think your dad's afraid of you, too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, man. Seriously. 
So just a real quick story, starting crest the curve. It was this, you know, was, it, I remember we talked about, uh, you know, building the plane as we flew it. And uh, and I remember I was worried. I was concerned about the money, where the finances were coming from. And and Tina looked at me one day and said, listen, we ha- we have to test people. We have to turn around tests quickly. And and we're about saving lives and making sure that we keep uh, people as safely as safe as we possibly can. We will get to the financial stuff that you're worried about, Bill. And and I'm going, okay, okay, let's go do it. And, <laughs> and that's really fantastic. It's and and I'm telling you, it's done for all the right reasons. Tina has a value system and principles that is all these things are done for all the right reasons. And we're not, we're talking about seven by 24 because I can't tell you how many texts she gets from me at night. I have this group of people that I just text at night uh, because it's the only time they really have time to talk to me. And except for Tommy, who goes to bed at eight. So. <laughs> let's 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 start with telling a little bit of the story um when you came in so so early on we knew we knew in idaho um let's be honest we're 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 a little rural we're not a big population center we knew we'd have to kind of fight for for what we got as as a state for testing and, and processes and so i think early on this group of folks just said, hey, what can we do to help? And, and initially it was supplies, Tina. If you remember when you first started it, we were all about the swabs, the culture medium, and, and the capacity for labs. And it was, how are we going to solve this problem? And I would say that the first, first month, we, we basically just acquired through contracts and relationships as many swabs and testing supplies as we could and PPE. And that was, that was phase one. And then phase two is where I really want to, I want to get there today with you because I remember a conversation with you early on and, and you know with my background in medicine i understand labs i understand pcr we went up bill remember when we went up to the university of washington it was a great trip up to their lab and, and we toured their lab so I, I got all that but what i didn't understand is here is this person from another industry who came in and said all of this is great but we have to build a redundant system for testing that doesn't rely on one lab and that eliminates all of the traditional barriers to quick turnaround. And we're going to do that through technology. And, and now that I've seen you, you've built it, but looking back till then, I must I was shaking my head like, I get it, but I, I didn't get it. Talk, talk us through uh, how you build a system that I, you know, right now, I don't know how many tests we're doing a day now, but it's a lot. And our trailing 24-hour turnaround time is you know, is, is, is excellent. But, but talk about what th- went through your mind and how you built the Crush the Curve Idaho uh, program and platform. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. And I think, you know, from a, from a key metric to talk about, you know, I was looking today on the governor's website, Idahoans 494,000 have been tested, right? Crush the Curve without any counting any of our medical partners, just crush the curve as an entity alone has facilitated and like done the testing for almost 80,000 people. Now that's almost 20% um, or yeah, almost 20% of the total number of tests in the state of Idaho have been done by crush the curve. And when you think about what that means, and I'm going to talk about how we got there from a scalable perspective. Um, it really, that, that to me is unbelievable. Right. And I think about, you know, what would this look like without all of that? So when we started in supplies, right, it was exactly what you said, Tommy. It was that was the main thing that was stopping testing. 
Um, I think the most frustrating thing that I've learned that I think the history books will outline as a fatal flaw to how we managed COVID, we, we always have and we still do, if you really listen to people talk, we look at the total number of cases as a metric for what's going on with the virus. And it is completely flawed. It was never going to work. And it was done nationally, globally. I'm not blaming. I don't want to blame one state or leader or whatever. It was the wrong metric from the get-go because if we were testing everybody every day, it was the perfect metric. So we've never even gotten to a level that experts would say we should be at for surveilling. So when you hear people talk in the community right now, I mean, and I, and I love some of the people that do this. They will tell me, oh, man, 1,500 positives today. And they want to talk about it. And I'm like, it isn't, it doesn't, it's so, it's a skewed metric. And it always was. And I'll give you an example. When you guys first brought me in, a lot of what we did was secure supplies. And then honestly, call even large hospital chains around the state and say, what do you need to be able to actually test? And I think at the time, guys, it was essential workers, right? It was first responders, healthcare workers. That was all we tried to see is what is needed to actually test them. And, it, and we would send supplies out. I remember talking to a large hospital chain in eastern Idaho. They had 14 test kits in their possession. 14 people could they test and they would be out of supplies. But yet their area, right, was sitting every night and watching the news to see how many cases were in their county. It was never going to work, that, that metric. So it still bugs me. It still bugs me that we look at that metric. The unfortunate thing is the only metric you could then, if someone wants to say, well, fine, Tina, what metric? The only one you could watch is hospital capacity. And unfortunately, that's a very trailing indicator of what's going on in, in a community. And it, and once it's at a level, right, it's just too late. So it, it's just always been this thing that's kind of driven me crazy. So when we, when we first came about, we, ex we, we moved away from supplies, crushed the curve, started figuring out a way to test a little bit better at scale and had some community testing. We had an experience in July when we saw everything swell where we were really tightly uh, tech-enabled with a single lab, single high-throughput lab. And that we got a call on, let's call it a Wednesday morning, that said, don't send anything else today. Uh, if you do, we can't put it on the machine till next week. Our governor's commandeered the majority of our capacity, and we had a machine go down. Well, we already have, I have testing sites running all over the valley. We have, we have test kits being collected. Fortunately, we were on a tech platform and we made calls and we connected same day to another lab, put a different FedEx label on that box and sent it off. But what I realized in that moment, and this is kind of that part I think, Tommy, you're leading to on lab capacity was like, we never again, never again are we going to go to and expect things to look different and be dependent on a lab. And at that time, that's when I said, I don't, you know, I want at least eight labs. I want to be able to do at all times, 10 times more than the capacity we're doing currently. And anytime we get um, under that 10 times amount, then we add another lab. And, and by taking that approach, it also gave us a lot of uh, flexibility and benefits we didn't realize, like the ability to quickly divert the traffic of those test kits to a lab because of resulting time and almost create a competitive environment with labs. So it was a really strategic move that we made it crush that what it really made it so that when when things would swell, we didn't kind of fall into the things that we've seen, you know, maybe other entities that are bound by red tape and can't make those really quick decisions. They still go to the large labs, right? Even if if, if right now LabCorp is, I'm not saying they are right now, I don't know what they're at. Let's say they're at 10 days. A lot of large hospital chains are still going to send over there. They, they didn't add anybody else. They didn't create a, you know, a, a way to react to that. So that was an earlier move that we made in July when that swell hit, where we decided not to be beholden and added more labs. Um, and what that really did, honestly, was uh, it, 
when I think about testing, I always talk about it as a stool. Supplies, you have to have them. Lab capacity is the other leg of the stool. So we have two of our three legs. The third leg and the only one I think that I've, that, that, and I know for sure because we get a lot of national attention from other groups for that crushed salts were very well as the collection leg of the stool, which is if you have all the supplies you could possibly need, your lab capacity is not an issue. Your turnaround time is perfect. How do you swab enough nose to genuinely keep the virus at bay? How do you do that? How do you do that, especially in a, in a, you know, today, December 8th, when all the hospitals and urgent cares and all the people that swab noses are overrun, right? And so what crushed it is it said, hey, we, we need to get those people out of it. We need to figure out a way that we could do collections um, and take advantage of the lab capacity that, that we've solved for and the supply issue that we solved for. And that's what's allowed Crush to have the volumes of testing we've, we've been able to do. And that's what honestly has allowed for us to really be able to help save lives. So, Tina, talk a little bit about how, um, how you go about the process of determining which labs to use, because almost on a day-to-day basis, you have a decision to make, you know, where the, where the samples go, what labs you use, and you have some type of a software or prioritization software or decision tree that you go through. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. So we call it like a lab listener. Um, you know, for all intents and purposes, it's gotten very simple with supplies. It used to be that we would have uh, the algorithm was more complex. It would say these labs can take only these types of transport mediums, like these types of fluids that go with the actual swab. Uh, and so we'd have to pay attention. What supplies does somebody have as part of the selection of what labs to move traffic to? Now, almost everybody takes pretty universal transport mediums, like almost all of our labs all can take the same kits. That has simplified everything because then all we have to do is say, hey, don't overrun a lab. So if a lab tells us, um, we like to try to use local labs as an example, local labs, they're, they're not high throughput yet. So they could take from us 500 a day. I don't want to send them a thousand because I'm going to mess up their turnaround time and wreck all these other things. So the lab listener allows us to say, hey, after we hit 500, the next person that wants a shipping label and we're about to move, you know, this nursing home with 200 people that just tested today, when they request the shipping label, it's automatically going to select a different lab so that we don't continue to overrun the local lab. So it's an example. If we had a lab situation like July where a lab said, don't send to us, we have a way to inactivate that lab until they say they're back online. Um, and so it's very seamless to the end user. If I'm a long-term care facility or one of the 20 school districts using us for testing, it's really at the point when they say, hey, I'm ready to ship my samples, that they may look at the label and go, oh, it's going to Bellevue today instead of Spokane, or oh, it's going to Memphis today instead of New Jersey. Oh, it's going to Boise. That's cool. I didn't know we had a local lab. So they don't really care, right? They're doing the testing. They have the supplies and the shipping label uh, dictates where it's going to go. And the shipping label matches the lab that's now going to have digital orders waiting for the kits as they arrive. Right. So one, one thing to keep in mind that I think it's important, we remind ourselves here a lot, we are a not-for-profit organization, Crush the Curve is. And uh, trying to, you know, so not-for-profit, um, you know, we're, this, we're running it with a skeleton crew. I mean, we have Tina, and I'm assuming about three part-time people or three or four part-time people. Would that be about right? Or I mean, we've right grown now? a little bit. You know, we definitely okay. have grown a little bit. And a lot of that, you know, it's not for people that plan on working here for all, you know, all of time. But, you know, we were able to secure some state contracts, like the long-term care one I'm talking about, et cetera. Right. So we right. were able to bring on, I mean, we're probably at five full-time 
five, six full time, you know, and then we've got some fractional help that helps around the edges and kind of scales up. Um, you know, so, you know, it, it's skeleton compared to the work we do, but it's definitely, we're definitely running a little bit, you know, larger than we, we did historically. Um, but the output they do is great. I mean, they're incredible and they're totally bought into the cause, which I love. The efficiency is, you know, literally off the chart. And when we talk about non-for-profit, I mean, literally we do not, I mean, there's an administrative fee, but everything's done cost plus type basis. I mean, there's, there's no profit in this, this, it's a matter of serving a community and serving a region, serving a region for our state. Yeah. Hey, Tina, before we leave this, I'm going to try to do a really good job of just summarizing what you just said, because I I just think it's so important. So we've tested 80,000 people with what we started with you and a couple of part-time people up to now five full-time people. If you stacked up how many people we've tested with the efficiency we've tested them with these other organizations, I'm just really proud of what you've done. And people have said, well, how does it do it? I would say, I'm not smart enough to describe the software like you did, but I would say what we did is we we, we rely on self-collection, right? So it's either self-collection by the patient or by a nurse in a nursing home or by a school nurse in the school districts we cover. And then we've taken everything else out of the middle and they have the supply, they have the labeled tube, the tube goes to a lab, they don't know where it's going because your software decides capacity and then those results come straight back to them. It's genius what you've done. Um, talk to me a little bit about, we've been asked by multiple states to help them set up a similar structure. And I think that's kind of gone unnoticed too, but I know you've worked with the, the state of Tennessee, North Dakota, uh, Arizona, Texas, lots of bigger states that have come to us and said, hey, how on earth are you doing this? Can you help us? And I know you've been very helpful to those regional, those other states too. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it has been a blessing um, to be able to to come alongside of some of those different states and just see what they're working on and where they're at. Um, you know, I think a lot of times for me, uh, I can be impatient. I think we should be further and have done more. Um, and then I get on the phone sometimes with other organizations and they haven't really gotten started. I mean, quite frankly, that's what it feels like. So I'm like, all right, I think we're doing okay. You know, I think that it could be worse. Um, you know, but I think the main thing that has um, really been eye-opening for me is their desire to have a group like Crush the Curve. I mean, that almost always comes up from like the policy people in the governor's office for some of these states is like, where did you guys come from? And like, how do we get our hands on, you know, how do we get maybe business leaders to care at the level that this group did to actually, you know, put their own money on the line, their own reputations on the line and tackle something like this. I think that's the thing that, you know, has stood out to me and kept me humble and recognizing, you know, just how grateful I am for the founding board that they were like, you know, let's do something and, you know, we'll get our own checkbooks out and this may or may not work, but we're not going to sit on the sidelines. Um, I, I just think it goes to speak to Idaho in general and what an amazing place Idaho is. And I know that that's where the conversation started when I came on board was, listen, you know, we don't have that many people that live in the state, right? I mean, I think LA Unified School District has more students than our entire state has population. So, it, it, you know, it feels like we we have a lot of open air. We got a lot of really good people. And, you know, we should be able to get this under control. Um, whether or not it's under control, I mean, I, I would say it's not under control. But I mean, we did tackle it. We, we're fighting the fight. Uh, we're doing all we can do. But, you know, I think, Tommy, to, to answer your question, it's been great to talk to other states. It's been great to share what we learned give them the playbook. There's no secrets here. We're not trying to hide some secret sauce of how we got something done. They want to open community testing sites. 
we forward over all the playbooks on how we stand it up, all the printables. I mean, we are, we're not trying to keep it hostage. That's for sure. That's great. You know, uh, what, what still amazes me the way this started this, I mean, literally started virtually. And, uh, and I think we were somewhat frustrated at the beginning of crush the curve. I think we were, we wanted to move quicker. We wanted to make more things happen. We, we started off with antibody testing to take inventory and make sure we knew where we were in the state. And, uh, so, but if, if you think about the way crush the curve started, it started with a group that got together and said, we think we can make a difference. Tommy was the impetus and the, the original energy and most of the energy around uh, the board. At, at, and, and, but we did it virtually. And then here comes Tina. And we had Tina that made all the energy. She made everything work on a day-to-day -day basis and actually put the strategy together. So it's, it's an important deal. Hey, you guys, do you mind if I change the subject? Change it. Okay, I'm going to change the subject. Listen, both of you have uh, had COVID, and and I'd like to talk about that just a little bit. I now have literally a couple dozen friends of mine that have had it. I'm staying really far away from them. Uh, these two have gone through it, and uh, they're way yeah. past it, and they think they're pretty cute because they think they don't need to be vaccinated for a few months and they're both too young to be vaccinated very quickly. But the point is, is tell us a little bit about, Tommy, start with us. Tell us a little bit about what it's like to all of a sudden go, oh, I'm positive. What, what's that yeah. feeling? So, so um, a little bit of background for me. So I've, I've had heart problems the last two years, had open heart surgery and then had a big heart event this summer. So I was really worried for myself. And then we have our, our littlest daughter we adopted and she's amazing, but she has bad lungs. She has a disease called uh, uh, eosinophilic bronchiectasis. And anytime she gets a cold, she ends up in the hospital. She's been she's had a bronchoscopy multiple times. So we're freaked out about this, right? And then we're trying to balance their teenagers, right? Going to school around friends. I mean, school's happening and thinking, and, I, and my, my doctor, Dr. Poignier, my longtime internal medicine doctor said, I don't know how you're going to do this because you live with viral vectors. You know, as good as you want to be and Shannon want to be every day, that little viral vector comes from the door and one of them can't get sick. So, you know, the first thing I would admit is we tried hard to stay safe as a family. And then we ended up getting it from a friend of one of my daughters, which is none, no fault of her. She got it from a group of friends and it came through our door. And... Uh, Boy, when you get it, Bill, the first thing you think is it's this letdown, like, oh, I, after all this time, I got it. And then there's some shame of, okay, I've got it now. Did I infect anyone? And you know what, Bill? It turns out I'm ashamed to say this, but I'm going to admit it today on our podcast. I gave it to my father that's in his 70s. I was in a room with him for probably 15 minutes with masks on, and that's the only exposure he could have had. It was after I had tested negative before I tested positive on a Saturday. So there's a good example for people out there that are, that are, that are, you know, there's a lot of people saying, well, if I got a negative test or this isn't that big of a deal, I gave it to him in a, in a short amount of time, in a short window that we had. Thank heavens he's doing well. He's a, he's a very healthy 74 year old guy and he's doing well, but uh, it's, it's infectious. And then I'll say, tell you about the illness because I had a lot of similar symptoms that Tina had. It was, I was sick. <laughs> I do not. I was sick, laying in bed, thinking, "Oh my gosh, what do I do?" 
Uh, I've got a fever. I've got my, I felt, felt like every joint was full of glass. I had a horrible headache and, and I just thought, I hope I just was laying there praying. I was praying to God that it wouldn't go to my lungs and my heart. Cause I thought I just, what am I going to do? And I'm taking vitamins, I'm drinking fluids, but I was, I was as scared as I've ever been because of my risk factors. And at the same time, my wife and my two daughters tested positive. So I was really worried about them too. So it, it, and then it's been a long recovery. It, it's, I, I was done with the acute illness a few weeks ago, but it wasn't until this week that I feel normal again. And Tina, I'll let you tell your experience, but, but you do not want to get this. Yeah, I would agree. You know, I think my experience is a little bit different. We do uh, proactive testing at Crush every 10 days. Uh, we all get screened. So, you know, it was a normal Tuesday test for me um, or Monday. Yeah, Tuesday test. Wednesday evening, I've got a car full of uh, teenagers for my youth group that I lead. And uh, I get a, a, I'm the admin on the Crush the Curve employee account. And then I'm a Crush the Curve employee. I got an alert. One, somebody in your org is positive. Please log in to view. And I got an alert. Your results are ready to be viewed. And I thought, oh, snap. So I opened my, <laughs> I opened my result. And sure enough, I'm positive. And I just turned to the car and started taking all these cute girls back to church to get them out of my car. And then I had to call their parents. And, you know, the only thing I can equate it to is, I mean, I felt like, cause I had this happen once in my home with four daughters a few years back. It felt like when headlights came through, man, I was mortified. Like I needed to tell people, Hey, sorry, you know, I might've given this to you guys. Like it was just making those calls. And, you know, I was fortunate because my symptom onset didn't happen for a couple of days. So I made different decisions between that positive test and actually starting to feel sick when a normal individual in our community would have thought I should get COVID tested. I don't feel good. Uh, I was able to make very different decisions in, in my daily activities and isolate in place and be able to do that. So that's a, a huge benefit, right? Of, of being able to have access to testing and, and fast result times. So I was able to take advantage of that. And then I had the same thing as Tommy, just very, very painful uh, body aches. I mean, that would probably be the thing, the headache and the body aches were horrible. And I had some post COVID symptoms that really surprised me, some insomnia and some brain fog that I, I was really glad when that let up, it was probably a good 10 days of that. So, you know, for me, nobody in my family tested positive nor had symptoms. Um, we tested them three times. So that was very different, you know, than Tommy's experience of the whole family getting it. So it's just a very interesting virus, right? It's just, I, I can't say why my family didn't get it and Tommy's did get it. I mean, you know, people always want to understand every piece and we just need a lot more data and history before we can answer any questions about this, you know, virus in that way. So, you know, I think that's the big struggle. We saw a ton of testing swell right before Thanksgiving. The intent is great. The intent is test and then I can go be with my family, even though the governor and everybody else says I shouldn't. I don't want to disrespect people wanting to be around family. It's been a lot of not being able to, but you know, to that end is it, it's a point in time test. Um, your safest bet is going to be, you know, until we can get some protection for those that are most vulnerable to just really limit those types of activities. Uh, and, and it bums me out to say that. You know, as we're coming towards the end of this, I do want to get to two things that are really important for me and Bill to talk today about. But the first one is um, we're kind of in this unique spot, Bill, where, you know, we're going to talk to Jim Souza too today but we're kind of in this unique spot in life where we've gone through Thanksgiving. We know what hospital capacity is doing kind of, you know, the cows are out of the barn here, they're loose and you're just, we're just trying to mitigate now. And, you know, there's still definitely a role for testing. There's still a role for, for, for that side of it. But 
But my goodness, I would I would plead with anyone that's listening today, plead <laughs> that the wearing of a mask and trying to respect the social distancing guidelines that have been requested. If you want to be a good neighbor, if you want to be a good friend, if you want to be a good family member, um, I mean, look at look at me as a, a, a bad example, I guess, where I was exposed. I, I was exposed enough to be tested and I and you do not want to infect someone. You want to you want to take precautions to make sure that you're you're doing all you can to be a good citizen and part of the solution. And now it's probably more important than ever with hospital capacity where it is. So, Bill, any more to say about that and Tina? Uh, just just recommendations uh, as we sit here on December 8th. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it, it troubles me in a pretty significant way to think that uh, we can't make that sacrifice for each other um, to wear masks. Now, I can tell you, uh, I will every once in a while catch myself walking across the parking lot into a retail store and go, oh, my mask. I keep one in my pocket all the time. I want to get the mask thing uh, super right. I don't want to miss on the mask situation. But it, it, if if we if if we're not willing to do this for each other in a kind of a mutual show of respect for each other, I can't imagine uh, how the you know I, I can't imagine when we really need something and really need somebody uh, how we could I mean we could miss as a society in a pretty significant way. So, uh, Tina, you're, you're around it all the time. I mean, you have, I mean, literally hundreds and thousands of people coming through here to be tested. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and some of these people are scared. I mean, they have a look in their eye that they're scared because they have the symptoms they're, they're, or they've been around somebody. And, and I don't want to see that look in anybody's eye. I, I, I want to make sure that we do masks to the best of our ability. Yeah, Do I, I think, think we need to mandate I don't know. We can debate the mandate mass all day long. I think what we need to do is just say, listen, they're that important. So, but go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, I, you know, my thing with masks, I think that that has been the most frustrating for me is, um, is because of the great state we live in and the people move here because they say like Idaho kind, you know what I mean? Like they want to be around the people. I have been very surprised by people not willing to wear a mask. And I think, you know, in the argument for why they don't want to wear a mask, for me, let's say that all their arguments are true. Let's say it's all just a big hoax and we're sheep and all the things. I'm fine if some evil person wanted to prank me and I stood on the side of like, hey, I thought this might save an elderly person's life. So I did it anyways. I'm fine standing in that light and they can stay where they're at. But if they're wrong, which we know they're wrong, science says they're wrong. And it's their heart or hearts. And if they want to pray to God, he'll tell them they're wrong. They need to wear a mask. So for me, that has been extremely frustrating. Um, I know because of the, the work that we do at Crush and then the calls we take. I mean, we, we have um, 300 long-term care facilities that utilize our program. These the people are literally dying regularly right regularly with these organizations we work for and the heart and they're dying alone and the heartbreak and the concern and i got to hear about somebody thinking that it's an infringement of their rights to just put a piece of cloth on their face it's a disappointment i wouldn't have expected it from idahoans i'm not impressed and i don't know if they just have no idea of what's going on around them it has been very frustrating from my seat and watching just kind of the purview of, of people's reasons to not wear a mask has been very baffling to me I, so I, I agree. 
So, Tina, just a quick question. Um, Tommy, we might have lost your your uh, visual, but I'm not sure. Um, but uh, listen, uh, what what do you think Crush the Curve looks like in the next three months, six months, and even a year? I mean, where do you see testing and um, our involvement with what, what's Crush the Curve's role as we evolve through vaccination? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, my, my first answer would be Crush the Curve's role has always been to support whatever Idaho needs during this global pandemic. So what, whatever that need is, if there's a hand that we can lend to it, we're willing to do that. And hopefully that's not just words and, and, and we've earned enough credit in the bank with the powers that be to believe that now, right? So whether that is any, if there's any involvement in helping with the logistical side of vaccine management, um, I think there's a, a hyper focus in 2021 to figure out how to manage schools better. Uh, I would like to say that we can admit as a state that we messed up from for semester number one. What's the plan for semester number two? I would like to know because the vaccines are not going to be the game changer for this evolving, revolving door of quarantining children, some of which don't even have food to eat when they don't go to school, let alone aren't getting educated. So my, you know, what I could see, and, and, and I know this because the tech that we license is also licensed by, for example, um, state of Massachusetts to do all of its school testing is that we have access to protocols being used and, and put into place for um, heavy return to school efforts nationwide starting in January. I think Crush could play a really significant role there. And we have been in talks for some time. I mean, again, though, Bill, I think the short answer is whatever Idaho needs. We've proven that we're, you know, there's nothing beneath us. Do they need, you know, is it supplies? Is it logistics? Is it actual, you know, is there, is it testing? What is it? Um, I think we've proven that we can add value in whatever arena the state needs in regards to this pandemic. Yeah. So uh, then to, the question that goes with that, will Crush the Curve exist a year from now? And will we have a role to play a year from now? You know, I think that's an interesting question. I, I really struggle thinking about the school. You know, what is the, I, I kind of like uh, go back to the head life statement in a little bit of a different way is that I don't know what it looks like at schools when it comes to COVID now, right? Is it kind of like how we have a head life policy at school of like, oh, this is a thing. And then this is the, the protocol for it. Is there still a testing arm to that? Are we truly expecting to force vaccinations or intend for vaccinations to be happening against all children? I just don't know. I think the school question mark is probably where, yes, a year from now, it's, you know, I think we need to see a comprehensive plan on how we're supposed to keep schools open and do the constitutional duty of educating Idaho's children. I do think that's going to have an element to it that's going to need something that's scalable, something that doesn't weigh on existing healthcare systems and public health systems and crush knows how to do that. So, yes, I, I absolutely yeah. believe okay. that the fall when school opens back up could and should look completely different than this last fall, but also still, I do believe, has a COVID element to understanding it. The virus is not gone one year from today. No, no exactly. No, that's, that's a great point. And then uh, we got to we got to wrap up here. But I do want to we, we're, we're out of time. But I want to I want to have one one last thing. We don't know how the vaccine is going to roll out. Two big unknowns in Idaho. One is what will will it be accepted by most Idahoans? Will people get vaccinated? Um, I think our message today, Bill and Tina, to everyone listening to this podcast is please get vaccinated as soon as you can and encourage your loved ones and family to get vaccinated, be part of the solution that way. But we don't know how many people will get vaccinated and, and that will determine a lot of what, what happens this next year. And then, and then secondly, let's assume that, that you're going to have a lot of people that want to be vaccinated. 
traditional healthcare systems are pretty clunky for cranking through a lot of people. And we've got you know, one point, almost 1.8 million people in the state and you need two doses. That's going to take a while. It's going to need something that's scalable that know that you know that that kind of like the software that you created, Tina, that connects lab capacity with with swabs. We're going to kind of need this, something similar in Idaho to get people vaccinated quickly. So so hopefully hopefully uh, we can work with the state and we can be part of the solution. I loved your answer. Whatever they need, there's nothing beneath us. Um, I think that I think that servant mindset and just being part of the solution. I think that will be the hallmark of crush the curve forever. Uh, I've had a lot of people that, you know, well, you've been so busy doing things. Some people have said, well, did crush the curve go away? And I think, oh my goodness, we're, we're, we have over 600 businesses that use us. We have, you know, over 300 uh, long-term care facilities. We have over 20 school districts and we've got little, we've got five full-time employees that are literally working 12 hours a day. So I'm really proud of you. Thank you for what you've done. I will tell you, we couldn't have done any of this, nothing without you. And I, I'm, I'm, I, and for me and Bill, I know Bill feels this way, and Bill, you can comment too. You know, when we're when we're even older and more gray, Bill, we will look back in fondness for what we did this year during this pandemic. Because for me, part of that initial meeting, Bill, is we were just felt paralyzed. What can we do to help? And at least we feel like we've been in the game. There's so many people complaining and moaning about everything going on. What you know, just and there's so many there's so many experts, right? You just get online and, and everywhere you look there's an expert. Um, but, 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 but in the middle of all that complaining, we were able to do something. And, and I appreciate you, Tina. I've learned so much from you. I uh, could never tell you thanks enough for what you've done for the people of Idaho and you have saved lives. So Bill, anything to add to that? No, I feel the same way. In fact, um, for all, pre I am really, really proud of Crush the Curve and what we've accomplished. Uh, but, uh, and I'm really pleased uh, to, uh, and you know, I don't want to be paternalistic and say I'm proud of you, Tina. You are an asset to Crush the Curve and, um, and one of my most respected people. And uh, so I'm really glad to have you. And like I said, with us, and I really do believe this, yours, you are our leader in so many different ways. And it's just great that we're all together. Oh, I really so appreciate I'm, I'm, that. I'm glad that Inspire Excellence got to have you and we got to talk about the curve today. I appreciate that. You know, I, I, I do tell. listening to the inspire excellence podcast we hope you've heard something today that will inspire you to make a difference in the world join us again for our next episode